My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by my friend, the anonymous poster, seasonal click farm worker, um, one of the best posters on Twitter, I have to say. Please do follow Clicking Season uh, on Twitter. Um, and we're here to chat about uh, a lot of things, but um, I think the, the, the perfect place to start is, uh, is an experience that I'm about to embark on uh, and one that you have some experience with. And I know you've been talking uh, about this uh, online and we've been chatting about this as well. It's uh, you know being a parent, having having kids. Uh, so first, welcome, um, and then yeah, tell tell me about it. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Well, yeah, I'm actually kind of excited to talk about uh, having kids with you because your due date uh, when we're recording this is next week, as I understand it. Yes. And exactly. uh, so you're about to go into some really interesting areas of your life and like unfold some new dimensions of yourself. <laughs> that you didn't know you had before. Um, and that's something that I've been going through over the last year and a half. And I'm actually going to have another kid soon. So uh, it's it's been a really interesting and eye-opening experience for me to do that. Um, yeah. What, what are some of the things that you're thinking about as you go into this? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm thinking about essentially about everything and nothing. I think I'm, I'm probably having a, a more severe case of pregnancy brain than post now, especially at the, at the end of the, end of the line. Like I, I, I catch myself just uh, staring off into space quite a few times a day. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm at the point where I'm just really excited. I feel like I've, I've prepared mentally. I don't, I'm not really worried about the, the whole labor thing. I'm actually quite excited in a way. <laughs> Maybe that's just me being naive and, and, you know, weird about it, but, uh, part, partly because, um, because of one of your recommendations, like I read the, the Ina book, the, uh, Ina May Gaskin book on, uh, on, yeah, essentially kind of birth prep, but I don't remember exactly what it's called, uh, but, uh, um, there's one called spiritual midwifery, which is like, uh, the first one. And then there was another one that came later, which is like her guide to childbirth. Yeah, that's the one I just, I got the, uh, the, the guide to childbirth and, uh, I don't know. I, I found it really calming. I don't know. A lot of people have told me I'm, I'm naively optimistic about this whole thing. I hope it's, I hope it doesn't, you know, blow up in my face, but I don't know. I've had a really chill, uh, pregnancy and, uh, you know, except for some crazy edema now because we're in like a heat wave. Uh, I, I feel absolutely fine. I'm, I'm excited about the next, the next phase. Yeah. My wife and I read that book aloud to each other while we were getting ready, uh, to, you know, for our baby to come. And it was, uh, it was great because the sort of structure of that book largely is about just people uh, recounting what their experience of it was. And this is all happening in a, um, in like a 
a center where they didn't have access to like advanced medical equipment or anything like that. So it's just people talking about their authentic and natural experiences of having a child. And it just blew my mind how like unrelentingly like beautiful and positive these stories were and how much that differs from the stories that I typically hear from people that I know who've been um, sort of uncritically uh, absorbed into the medical system and had a medical experience of childbirth. Um, Everybody, like a lot of people seem to have nightmarish, horrible, (laughs) scarring experiences um, having kids. And obviously it's not fully my place because I'm, I'm a man. It was my, my wife who, who did the real heavy lifting as it were. Um, but, uh, our experience together of this process was just one of the most beautiful moments, like start to finish of, of our lives. And it's just a tragedy that so many people don't have that kind of experience when it's totally on the table. And I hope that that's, is what it ends up being for you and your husband. Yeah, I hope so too. I mean, kind of at the beginning of this process, I was pretty much still in the kind of in the in the medical field and kind of stuck into the the medical paradigm of it. Um, and at the moment, where the plan is to to we have a birthing center here, and they have like it's a little bit more woo. They've got a, a pool, you know. It's it's a bit, we've kind of went <laughs> in the middle of the road with it. Um, so it's not a complete home birth because. Um, it's just it's, it's kind of a thing that people just don't do here for some reason it's it's very it's still very medicalized you'd think that you know people are you know a bit more uh open to to you know just solving this problem with the midwife um here in eastern europe because you know we're we're backward or, or at least we're a bit more traditional but it's actually quite uh quite weird because yeah it's um you, you do still have midwives you know in like far away places like in uh, in the countryside you know rural places just because they don't have other resources but i think you know people if you were to take the standard child's birth method here for like a upper middle class woman, it would be a scheduled cesarean, uh, you know, maybe a few days before the due date just to not risk actually having the baby with that one. So it's a, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a bit weird. I think it's also, you know, we've had a lot of deprivation, um, you know, during communism. So, after communism, we've kind of taken on a lot of the things that we see as luxuries coming from the West, like, you know, things that make everything easy and, you know, shortcuts and, and, you know, medical miracles that we just didn't have or were done badly during communism now are done in the private sector. And it's like, whatever is, you know, most, most high end or most fancy people, people will, will gravitate towards. So, I don't know. I feel like I'm probably the most, you know, hippie person I know trying to have a natural birth in a birthing center, like a, like a total weirdo. Uh, if I, I'm not going directly under the knife. So it's, uh, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a strange thing and it's hard to argue for here as well because people are like, Oh my God, are you sure you want to go through that? Uh, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I probably do. Well, I think it, and the part of the reason I thought it'd be interesting to talk about this not it's not just that you're like on the precipice of this important moment but also that it's such a apt metaphor for what progress really is and 
the interventions that we try to make to try to make things better without knowing how much we don't know. Um, one of the things that um, blew my mind when I first learned about it that nobody ever talks about is the role of the different um, psychoactive hormones um, during childbirth and what they do to you both um, mentally, but also physically. So that the whole process of childbirth is spurred by um, this incredibly like high dose of oxytocin, which you probably know what oxytocin is, but many people might not. It's, it's the bonding hormone. It's, it's the hormone that is the physical analog of the feeling of attachment. Um, and that's the feeling, the feeling of love that you have, right? So throughout somebody's normal life, they might experience, you know, peak levels of oxytocin, like uh, it occurs after orgasm or just like, you know, hugging somebody who they really, really love. <laughs> um, and this is, they can experience like fairly high levels of it. And it is directly the cause of the feeling. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hormone that causes the feeling. Um, but it's also the hormone that, that moves childbirth along and causes contractions. Um, so really what enables a person to have uh, the process happen at all is that they're, ex they're having an experience and there's this mind body connection. The experience of that love feeling <laughs> in their bodies is releasing or is the same as the oxytocin in their bodies and the oxytocin causes contractions to happen and makes the, the birth progress. Um, so what, what are we doing wrong? Uh, you, when you take a woman and put her into a, uh, a medical setting where the lights are up high, people are moving around with clipboards and, and monitors and, and doing all this stuff, it makes her, it's very distracting <laughs> from what she needs to be doing, which is meditating on that feeling, <laughs> that experience that's happening to her. And so there's so many stories about uh, people who are, their labor is going fine. And then as soon as they get to the hospital, it just shuts off because they're not, they're no longer psychologically in the place that causes the physical thing to happen. Um, and then, so we've done the first intervention, which is just moved a woman into an, another place. Um, so it causes a problem. And then we have to fix the problem. Uh, and the way that we do that is by giving them uh, usually Pitocin, which is a synthetic oxytocin that's injected. And so that really what that then does is it's just putting the oxytocin into your body, but it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier because it's supposed to be originating um, like in your brain, giving you these sensations and feelings and also going into the body and causing the, the physical reaction. But suddenly your body is like turned into a meat puppet. It's like an automaton. Um, it's doing this sort of process, uh, but it's divorced from its, uh, its sort of psycho-spiritual analog. Um, so of course that's horrifying. You, you're suddenly like being 
turned into a machine <laughs> and you're mentally detached from the machine. Um, and that's, uh, that's just a harrowing experience, I think, for, for a lot of people that I've talked to. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I feel like it's, you know, we, we, we have these bodies, we know that there are, I don't know, 20 levers on them that you learn about in medical school, and you can pull these levers in different combinations. But just the, the, the sheer complexity of how these things interact at the level of the body and how many levers we don't understand, you know, the unknown unknowns about, about the body. It's just a, a vast field. And uh, I don't know, a, a lot of the things that I see, you know, medicine and, and modern science do is just, you know, just throwing monkey wrenches in the machine and in a, in a predictable pattern and seeing things, you know, change, but in a very brute force way. Like this, this all seems like almost, I know butchering people, but you know subtly with the you know a, a little bit of you know hormone here, a little bit of that here, uh, and I I feel like you know in, in in cases of extreme distress, I think you know we know how to fix like crazy problems that occur rarely, but to fix those crazy problems that occur rarely, you intervene in this process that you probably should leave alone uh, if it you know if there if there are no crazy problems that occur rarely so i don't know it's uh it's I don't, you know the, the book definitely kind of put me a bit on guard with regards to the to the doctors i'm like i don't know guys i've, I've had like this whole birth plan with like which is essentially kind of boils down to just leave me alone if, if possible <laughs> yeah. let me concentrate yeah exactly yeah, and I've, I've, I've created, I've made it bilingual, so my, my uh, husband knows exactly what's written on it, cause, you know, he's, he's from New Zealand, so, uh, he's gonna be, you know, the people here speak English, but they, if, if it's like, you know, a, a situation where, you know, uh, they're probably under pressure, they're not gonna wanna speak English, they're just gonna be chatting around in Romanian, so. That'd be so scary for him, and that, that really sucks. Yeah, yeah, he's, you know, he's trying his best. He's he's doing the Duolingo, but I don't think he's gonna m manage to re learn Romanian in time until next week or <laughs> whenever, whenever it's gonna be needed. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and it's it's interesting that you say, you know, this is this is a very good model for. Uh, a lot of fields that were involved. And I think, you know, with COVID, it's been just this incredible case study of, of this, of this pathology of science where it's like, okay, we've got these specialists and they're specialists in a fraction of a fraction of the problem, which is maybe very specific, you know, related to the virus. And then they're just let loose uh, in, in re remanaging society. It's, it's just insane. Well, what, what science seems to be really good for in a way is solving for X. If you can say what X is right, we can maximize X. And so, you know, with COVID it was, we want to reduce death from COVID to zero. Um, there's, there's never any ability on the part of these uh, quote unquote experts to think holistically and see the whole picture and evaluate trade-offs. Um, so of course it is possible to re reduce your risk of contracting or dying from COVID to nothing. If you just live in a bunker and, you know, never go out and never interact with another human being. Um, but there are, there are trade-offs to doing that. Um, and of course you can make a child come out of a, of a birthing body um, you understand how to make that happen, but if you 
are only like monomaniacally obsessed with uh, just one part of a complex process, then the interventions that you might make uh, sometimes interfere with other parts of the process that you're not really thinking about. Exactly. And this is just, you know, you think it's like a, a case study of one or it's like a, you know, it's a microcosm, but every microcosm is a, is a macrocosm as well. Like there's so many things that go into this process. Like how, how was it for you uh, and, and your wife? I mean, you're, you've, you're already one, one down, one to go. Uh, you have a little bit of experience with this. Like, was it, uh, you know, were you inspired by anime enough to, to do what's right? Or, uh, you know, did it, did it get complicated? Well, I'm a, I'm from a large family and my mom did lots of home births. So actually was at home when she gave birth to uh, several of my sisters. And, you know, when, so when I grew up, we were sort of like, uh, I guess, hippie, hippie back to the land type people. Um, and so I, I had, a comfort with the idea of home birth already. Um, when my wife and I started talking about it, it seemed like something that she was interested in doing. And um, so we went for it and had just a really peaceful, perfect experience. Um, that's not to say that there wasn't uh, any challenge. <laughs> I think that uh, obviously uh, my wife went through uh very singular and intense experience. Uh, but doing it at home was so amazing because uh, everything was comfortable. And, you know, when baby finally came, you could just enjoy that like miraculous moment. Uh, the midwives hung out for like an hour and cleaned up everything. And then they left and there we were suddenly just on our own, which was a real trip. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was beautiful. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And that's, you know, excellent. And during the process, you know, were you kind of sufficiently, um, chill about the fact that, you know, the, you know, mom was healthy, baby was healthy. Were you kind of keeping that under, uh, supervision or yeah because i mean at least for me at, at this point they're checking me every week so i get a sonogram every week everything's you know very very much monitored i think there are probably lots of different uh different midwives with different sort of ways of working but one thing that they all have in common is that they're like really sticking their necks out um in the sense that they are taking on this awesome responsibility and they don't take it lightly. So I, I think that if anything, they tend to be to err on the side of caution when something isn't going right, they'll want to whisk you right off to the hospital at the first sign of something um, not, not being safe. So I think for most people who are in a city, you know, where, where I live, there, there are probably four hospitals within, you know, a mile. Uh, so it's really nothing to worry about. If something happened, we could be there in a flash. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is interesting because uh, a lot of the times, you know, you hear about the, the cases where, oh, okay, you know, um, 
a home birth or, or too little medicalization led to a disaster. And that's the anecdote that you get. But um, in my family, actually, quite, quite close to me, um, we, we had a kind of a a malpractice case, you know, where the baby was, uh, you know, deprived of oxygen for, for a while and, and forceps and things like that. So the baby had issues for a long time and then the, the child died later in, in, you know, I think, uh, at, at 12. So it was an absolute terrible, you know, malpractice disaster. Um, and that's one of those things where it's like the baby was healthy. And I can imagine, you know, I don't know exactly all the details about this, but there was, you know, quite a lot of force involved in that birth and which, as, as far as I understand, wasn't necessarily, you know, warranted. So it's, um, it's a, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you can see one, one side of the, of the coin and people are very scared of that one side of the coin, but it's, you know, all this, this iatrogenic harm that these, these hospitals produce, uh, it just doesn't really get registered. Like, for example, in, in Romania, we don't really have the, the, I mean, we have the concept of malpractice, but no one has ever won a malpractice suit in this country. So, uh, you know, the, the, the college of doctors here, um, is, is very, uh, you know, they, they, their ranks are very tight. They don't really, uh, you know, they don't, uh, there's, you know, snitches get stitches in, in the medical <laughs> profession. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's really tough to, to even hear about malpractice. And I yeah. think that's, that's quite the dark side. Right. And, I think that's that's where I was sort of going when I said uh, that midwives are singularly taking on a, a kind of of risk um, by by doing this thing with you um, and taking on that responsibility. They're opening themselves up, at least in the U.S., to you know catastrophic lawsuits and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so I, my hat is off to them for being willing to to do it. Um, one of the things that I sort of wanted to draw out is just uh, that when you're having uh, a medical childbirth, it becomes a series of cascading interventions where the first thing that you do might be sort of innocuous, and but that might have you know, unforeseen consequences. And then another intervention is necessary to do that, uh, to, to like fix the first, the problem caused by the first intervention. And then that'll cause another thing. And you end up with just sort of this waterfall of, of unforeseen consequences that are medically caused and then medically resolved to some degree or other. Hopefully it all works out okay in the end. Um, and this just sort of seems like a metaphor for so much that we have socially, um, not just in the medical field, but for almost anything that we do to try to improve our lot. Um, I'm, I'm sort of a, I'm like, uh, I guess you'd consider me an ex-progressive or something, just somebody who became incredibly pessimistic about our ability to intervene and uh, make improvements <laughs> in our lives um, because we never are able to see the full picture. And so often the evolved solution or the, the received, um, you know, folk wisdom solution really is already optimized, uh, to a great degree. When we start messing with it, uh, just, uh, cascading 
interventions become even more necessary and we end up in some kind of a weird place. Um, one of the things that uh, is on my mind today uh, because I was visited by my nephew um, who is, he's a little under one year old. He's an incredibly beautiful child and, and bright and very cute. Um, but he's got a flat head. Uh, and there, it turns out that uh, half of all children born since 1992 have flat heads. 40, 46% have skull deformities. And this is a medically caused uh, deformity um, that is a direct result of a public health campaign that we started to, um, well, that the medical establishment began to propagate around 1992 called the Back to Sleep campaign, where they put lots and lots of effort into getting everyone to put their child to sleep on their back. Um, this was meant to uh, prevent uh, sudden infant death syndrome, which was an extremely rare and tragic thing um, where children sort of die in their sleep and you don't know why. Um, they still don't really know why. And there are lots of things associated with sudden infant death syndrome. But when they made all mothers put all of their children on uh, to sleep on their backs, they were able to reduce it by half. Um, so it went from one case of SIDS per thousand births to half a case per thousand births from 1991 to like around 2006. That's sort of the, the graph I was able to find. Um, so that's a, that's a success, right? But really it's only a success if you're able to uh, monomaniacally focus on this one factor. <laughs> um, by making this like percentage-wise huge increase, you've, you've uh, halved the number per thousand of this, of this uh, tragic event. Um, you've actually caused 46% of infants to have head deformations. <laughs> um, and if you know anything about putting a kid to sleep, they really don't like to be on their backs. They actually have a thing called a moral reflex where they, they'll like fling their arms up in, in sort of a distressed uh, response whenever they're put on their back. And that's why they need to be swaddled so tightly to just contain their arms and present, prevent that really unpleasant uh, falling feeling that they have when they are going on their backs. Babies love to sleep on their stomachs, on their sides. They hate, hate, hate sleeping on their backs. So what you have in order to go from one per thousand to 0 0.5 per thousand SIDS deaths, you have lots of miserable children crying and unable to go to sleep because they're in an uncomfortable position and they can't sleep. Um, you have half of them having a skull deformity the downstream effects we don't we don't know, um, and I just don't think that that's worth it. <laughs> I don't think that that's necessarily a trade that was uh, that was wise, given that we don't actually know that this was the thing that made the difference. Um, and even if it was. Uh, I'm not sure that it makes sense for a person with a healthy child who doesn't have the uh, 
horrible uh, other like, um, what's the word? For when problems cluster together, the children that die of SIDS have uh, lots of other related issues. Um, if you've got a healthy child, it's really not something that's going to happen to you. Uh, so just let the child be happy. Let him keep his natural head shape <laughs> and sleep in a more comfortable way. That's just my opinion. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because I, I noticed this as well. And we have kind of a, a generation of people here in, in Eastern Europe as well. And I used to I used to call that like, oh, I could tell someone's Romanian from the fact that they have this, you know, plagiocephaly. And because uh, I, I think there there was a, a very similar, you know, thing with, with midwives and doctors here, just telling people to, to you know, force the baby to sleep on its back. Uh, I didn't realize that that was a, you know, a, a recent thing or if it, that that was, it was a problem in the West as well. Because you know, my mom, she she made sure that she she invented like a weird thing because she knew that this could happen. So she she kind of custom made like a pillow for my head just so that it's kind of like a little baby nest or something. So I didn't have this <laughs> this weird deformity. So yeah, she she was careful about it. But so many people have it. Like yeah, it's it's interesting to hear that yeah this this is not just a, a local thing. Um, do you think it's I think it will happen to you if you trust the experts without thinking about. About it. <laughs> if you yeah. don't do a little bit of research, this, this will happen to you. And, and it is hard. Like, I mean, I'm I'm all about the research. I like to I like to poke poke around and you know in, in places where I shouldn't. But uh, uh, I think a lot of people just don't don't have the time or are swayed by like really dramatic um, narratives because I think you know this is you know another aspect to this uh, to this problem is that you know SIDS is terrifying. It's, you know, there can be all sorts of things that happen with your baby, you know, that can go wrong, you know, jaundice and things that are, you know, more common and you, you might want to think about even more than SIDS. But SIDS is just this, you know, stalking, creeping, you know, just sudden infant death syndrome. Oh, my God. You know, that's the one thing I want to avoid because it's like it's completely out of your hands. So I wonder how how strongly the 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 narrative power of this, you know, creeping evil uh you know made made people you know be very attentive to it and and made maybe the government pay more attention to it because there's there's so much to be said about you know what what types of risks we pay attention to because most risks in life you know we, we don't care about you know we don't care about traffic accidents uh but we care about COVID-19 which is you know a, a marginal risk compared to that so it's um it's it's interesting like how I don't know the 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 narrative uh horsepower of a certain type of evil can yeah. can push uh you know how how it's perceived. Well that sort of ties into the sort of the clickbait structure of of where our attention goes. You know if if energy flows where attention goes, then one of the problems that we have to deal with is that attention goes to certain kinds of things and not others. It goes to to juicy things and things that that reward our uh, propensity for antagonism and conflict, <laughs> um, for our ability to separate people into different kinds of uh, tribal groups and demonize the other side. Um, we find these kinds of things really rewarding. So when something is really juicy, like SIDS or dying from COVID, 
then it's just so rewarding to our lizard brains to, to like, you know, focus on that specific thing to the exclusion of all the other interrelated factors and solve for X. Uh, and I think one of the problems that we have is that in this sort of information connected world where uh, we're finding out what kinds of content go viral and are the most, have the, the highest mimetic, mimetic velocity, you could say, um, the things that are the most mimetically juiced end up occupying all of our brain space and our problem solving potential. It's impossible to imagine COVID except as a clickbait event, really. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's, that's a a very good way to, to, to put it, Um, especially because it, you know, especially from the beginning, it was animated by these very powerful visual images of, you know, desperate Italian doctors uh, of, you know, people collapsing in the street in Wuhan. You know, it was essentially the the George Floyd of disease. Um, People, you know, just almost shat themselves because, you know, this is the apocalypse and now we have to change everything. So there's a a lot of a lot of pressure in, in that direction. There's a desire for things to be bad also. Like, you know, it's very boring uh, to live in a, in a world where nothing is really going wrong. And there's nothing, there's no uh, thing to, to compel you. And so we have this hunger for it to be the big one all the time. Um, and one of the things that that makes the world seem so clownish is this constant desire on the part of people to take whatever's in front of them and say, this is the big one. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I feel like, you know, I think you commented on this as well. You know, people are really missing structure. They're really missing, um, you know, compulsion in a way, uh, you know, order in their lives, uh, some some event to to rally around, because you know everything's very much um, up for grabs. Like you know, norms have been dissolved in the in the gray goo of liberalism, and now you know, choose your own adventure. But but the the Swedish buffet of of life is it's hard to it's hard to parse. So when something big like this happens, it's uh it's quite good. And I remember the first weeks of coronavirus. It was. You know, it was it was scary, but it was also kind of inspiring to see, you know, people zooming you out of the blue, you know, old friends checking in, like, what's going fun, on? In a way. I mean, yeah. I, I really invigorating. I was like, wow, like the, the edge sketch is getting shaken up. This is going to be something new is going to happen here. And because I'm a human being, when things start getting crazy, I get really activated, you know? <laughs> Um, and it's rewarding to feel that activation. It was, it's funny. I, I was totally a sucker for those videos in, in Wuhan of people being like caught with butterfly nets over their heads and like bundled into cars for trying to leave the perimeter or whatever. I thought, okay, this is whatever's going on here is going to be really serious. And the the disappointing part uh, on a psychological level for me was almost, I'm exaggerating, but in a sense, it was that it turned out to be a big nothing burger um, compared to what we were making it out to be. It just wasn't. 
And then we had to sort of go through the motions of pretending for, you know, a year and a half afterward that what we were dealing with was the thing we were afraid it was going to be. Um, but we wanted it to be this big deal so that we would have something to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of people are still kind of in that narrative, maybe because they don't want to let go of the, of the, the dream of coronavirus in a way, you know, the, the coronavirus dream, so, yeah. like a, a meaning giving event. Yeah. Cause there's just so, so few of them, um, you know, you can't really imagine a great war, you know, the, the blitz isn't coming, at least not in the form that, you know, it, it, it came up, up across London and, you know, the, all the stories of, um, of solidarity and, and, you know, uh, keep calm and carry on and that type of stuff that's not coming back. So this was the closest thing we got. And it's like you said, one big nothing burger. I mean, we're constantly inventing crises, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah, um, we're, we're in the uh, I, I don't really even know how many uh, sequential crises we've had. And it's just we just move from one crisis to the next in a s desperate search for having a reason to get out of bed or like to, under, to make sense out of the world. And I think it's uh, it's something to do with the way that our communication and and information tech is just automatically set up to reward us with with uh, inflaming memes. We just get out of bed and look at our phones and we suddenly start feeling agitated and, and pursue that feeling of agitation uh, <laughs> towards uh, some somewhere when then we end up in some very strange uh strange place yeah yeah exactly and it's uh yeah it's it's, it's weird because it is it is a source of meaning or at least it's a very good meaning simulator you know like when i wake up in the morning and i i, I check my my twitter see what what happened overnight in, in the in the american empire uh it's like oh my god it's like 99.9 percent .9 of all of that stuff has no no absolutely no effect on my life on my material day-to-day -day living but man is it exciting <laughs> it's exciting to feel like you're part of of something something big and you're communicating with other people who are you know the movers and shakers and, and all that like to me to yeah. me twitter has been this this weird portal to that world but at the same time i also realize it's you know it's it's very much a, a simulation of a simulation um well it's it's very i mean for me it's a, it's a mixed bag because I love it so much. I love that, that sort of feeling of camaraderie of like being a jolly warrior and of, you know, uh, showing, uh, <laughs> showing the people who are wrong, uh, why they're wrong. And, and, you know, just that sort of whole culture of like witty, um, repartee that it has. Uh, and, it's fun, <laughs> uh, but it's uh, it's important to remember that that is actually designed to be fun <laughs> and designed to hook you in. Yeah. Um, and that there are just really simple things. Uh, 
that maybe people who designed these systems actually didn't know, but we're finding out through experience about what kinds of allegiances people tend to be able to develop, um, what kinds of fears activate their, their inputs. Um, it, we're like really running a, a crazy psychological experiment on ourselves. And I think COVID and uh, George Floyd are just two of the recent examples. I mean, Donald Trump was in a, in a large sense, just wish fulfillment for people who wanted to experience uh, inflammation, wanted to experience some kind of uh, being activated by something, you know? And he was just very good at pushing buttons that make people feel activated either, either for or against. So understanding this part of our nature is, is pretty important if we're going to survive uh, the internet. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you, you made a, a really interesting uh, point at, uh, at one juncture um, in saying about, you know, the kind of the this, this, this space that we're in, I would call it, I know, the dissident right or dissident, whatever, weird Twitter. Um, uh, you said that, you know, kind of the, the schism that's happening right now is, you know, between people who understand, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, Foucault and the, the concept of, of, of power knowledge, but it's, it's this idea, you know, of understand narrative, you know, you understand how narrative is created and what, what the power behind narrative is and, and how people absorb knowledge and how that's tied into tribes and how that's tied into belonging. And, you know, there's, it's, you know, the, the way we construct um, our vision of ourselves is not based on the marketplace of ideas as much as we would like to, you know, believe that. And and I'm kind of on that side, but you said that this is kind of the, the big difference now between people who uh, reject this concept and say, okay, no, 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 we, we cannot accept Foucault and whoever, you know, the, the idea that anything is constructed, there is the realm of reality and there's this, this bullshit French stuff from the 1960s that needs to be burned to the ground so we can return to, I don't know, the 1980s and, I don't know, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or whatever ideas people have. Um, and then there's, you know, kind of that, that's probably the other, the other side of this is like the IDW train where it's like, okay, we're, we're on the march to progress and the progress is classical liberalism and we're going to resurrect John Stuart Mill in, in a hot minute. Uh, and it's all going to be fine once we, once we rid ourselves of, of these illusions, you know, of, of unreality. So I, I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if you'd put it this way, but I think, I think you know what, what I mean. I, that was, a, I think, an older tweet. Yeah. Um, well, there's some sort of, I feel a bit torn on this one. Um, one of the things that, that I think uh, we've uncovered collectively is the knowledge that Foucault was right in the sense that power tends to be expressed through kinds of knowledge, knowledge that contains um, the expression of, of power within it, within, the, within that information. Uh, maybe I'm not expressing this very well. I'm not really a, a Foucault scholar. We should talk to Jeff about this. But 
there is a desire, I think, on some part of the sort of uh, post-left, post-liberal kind of space to say, okay, I get it, these uh, sort of critiques of the old free speech, liberalism kinds of uh, ideology is actually correct in the sense that it's not, it's never going to work. Liberalism itself just is sort of a doomed project. And we just want to have a more pro-social kind of illiberalism. <laughs> the, the illiberalism that we have now is silly and, uh, and bad. And that, uh, what we should have instead is some sort of a good illiberalism uh, that just reasserts pro-social values. And, and we, you know, imagine ourselves capable of directing that. Um, I think there's, that seems like a bit of cope uh, to me because we could never uh, actually direct that kind of power. That's the the lesson from Foucault is that nobody actually is in charge of this kind of power knowledge. It's just oozing up from everywhere all the time. And it just, uh, it happens to us. Nobody gets to be, the God emperor. Um, so no Caesarism. It's, it's just, I mean, it's not going to happen. I, I think that's, that's a, that's a fantasy. I mean, if I could be the king of the world and, and decide on what social norms were, then I, yeah, I, I would have some ideas about what I think would be some norms that would be helpful to people that would help them live better lives. And some of those things would be things that, or just sort of looking at what human traditions were like before, before we went on this sort of atomizing uh, individualist project. But uh, here's the reality. We actually are already in the world that we're in and uh, liberalism is unsatisfying uh, in a lot of ways, but there's one thing that it's really good at and what it's really good at is is um, getting people who disagree to coexist um, peacefully. Um, and I mean, where I live for a if, while. <laughs> yeah. I mean, up, up, up and up until it stops working <laughs> up until the liberalism disappears, uh, coexistence is possible. <laughs> um, but maybe it's uh, just a doomed project and it's doomed always to eventually disappear. Um, yeah, I think you you, yeah. you you made an, an interesting point there, you know, about about things not being top down. And I feel like both sides of this divide kind of have illusions about how much is possible to be done top down. You know how how much you know how much scale can you inject into this, and how much uh, how much information uh, you would need to actually you know create these systems where I, I don't know whatever integralism or whatever, which is kind of just one flavor of, of what, what could be done with like a structured illiberalism that's a goal directed and pro-social, you know, based in something that's, uh, that's not continuously shifting like liberalism. Um, but, uh, it's, it's one that's never going to happen in the current regime. Like, you know, this is, I think probably in terms of any sort of, um, regime that's being talked about, Recently, the idea of Catholic integralism is probably the biggest LARP because it's preposterous. 
Yeah, that's absolutely impossible. It's it's a great thought experiment, and I do love to talk about it, and I think it's quite interesting to 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 you know muse on, but it's it's, it's not going to happen. Um, and on the same as in the same token, you know the the idea in in a way even the the, the classical liberals have the same illusions of of control because then you know you hear a, a lot about like okay oh you need to reject uh baudrillard and you know it's like the idea that you know baudrillard is like some form of uh i don't know theologist and and he's imposed these things like a, a lot of a lot of deconstructivism and a lot of people you know in, in the in the damned frankfurt school were just reporting on things that were already in motion, you know, this is a, a lot of this stuff has happened as a result of technology, of as a result of, you know, changes that are are huge and that are that are creating emergent phenomena that have no one's in charge of. Like you said, you know, it's uh, it's it's not about you know <laughs> rejecting rejecting Foucault and burning our Baudrillard books. It's it's about you know this is this is just one guy you know writing about the end of the world. <laughs> that's that's you know that's that's all of history. Yeah, I mean, progress just keeps coming and it keeps creating new problems. And then we solve those problems with more progress, which creates new problems. And then that that's just, you know, in a way, the circle of life. Um, I don't I don't think there's any way to, to hop off the this sort of uh, Ferris wheel of, of progress and the things that it does to us and the, the things that it makes it makes us do next. Yeah, th that's the thing, you know, it's like once once you put it in motion, there's not really you can't really not mitigate its effects uh, and the idea that you're just going to, you know, turn Amish instantly or you know, go back to some imagined past uh, and only you know, pick out some, <laughs> some cool things to return to uh, is a bit hard. But I think one thing is making um, I feel like it's putting a lot of pressure on people to to figure out what they should be doing. It's, it's to me like the demographic crisis is something that if we don't figure this out, like you don't even need like I don't know an asteroid or whatever you know chemical bomb or something like that. The great filter is literally our inability to to reproduce. It's quite it's quite simple and it's it's happening. Like you see. Oh, what was it like Singapore under under one per, uh, child per woman, uh, South Korea zero point nine or something like that. It's 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 really really scary what's going on, and you know the West is you know the same. I think was it one point six now in the U.S. Who, a country that used to be quite fertile compared to the rest of the West. So I don't know. To me, that's that's pretty scary. Uh, what's what, what's your feeling about the about the demographic end of the world? Well, I don't really have any, any optimism about like being able to arrive at political solutions to things or, you know, or, or to like logic our way out of the situation. But what I do feel optimistic about is, uh, is that we can actually begin to identify what are some good things? What are some things that make us feel good and that like provide us as human animals with like a happy, um, just valuable experience. And there's, to me, there's nothing, there's no action that you can take that more strongly indicates that you think life is on balance good than having a kid. I mean, having a child is the thing that you do 
because you think it's worth it to be here in the first place, you know? And then when you do that, if you do it well, uh, actually you will find that it really is good. Like having kids is just a wonderful, positive thing uh, that you hear so many horrible stories about uh, because people are doing things wrong or doing things poorly. Um, or you know, maybe there's some other more nefarious reasons where we're being bombarded with sort of anti-natalist pop propaganda all the time. Uh, but yeah, it's, that's just like inherently a good having family is a good, um, being in a situation of reciprocity and, and love, uh, and complimenting the people around you, giving to them and allowing them to give to you what you can't do for yourself, uh, is just, uh, so on like a somatic level, it's such a positive experience that I, I think the more people who, who do it, uh, the better things will be. I mean, I don't know if I could say the more people, the better or anything like that, but really what the political project should be, this is hard to do. It's just figuring out what are the good things in life and then trying to get them. Like our friend Joseph says, uh, politically, my entire politics are being against bad things for good things. <laughs> I can say like family, the experience of it is a good thing unless you're doing it wrong. Yeah. I feel like a, a lot of people have um, experiences of family, maybe in this generation, and maybe, maybe they did have this in, in previous generations as well. You know, we, we kind of are stuck with, with boomer vision on this one, just because that's kind of the, the, the closest one. But I see a lot of people like I, I used to be like this. I didn't, I didn't want to have family because I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the cycle, the cycle stops with me and the things like that. Uh, but then, you know, you, you kind of grow up and you, you see some, some, some better, uh, models and you realize, okay, this is a really worthwhile thing to do. Uh, and then you kind of jump into it from, from a different angle. But I, I know a lot of people who've just kind of skipped out on the experience altogether. It just really, don't see the benefit in it. And, um, I don't know. It's, is, is this, you think this is something that's, that's unique to this last generation or is it, I don't know. Is it, is it tied to, to autonomy worship, to individualism? It's kind of hard to figure out, but it, it does sort of feel like, it feels like it goes along with the loss of, picture of yourself as uh, as in service to something to something larger than you right which would be your community or your family um, the replacement of that with an experience that's about yourself as just a sort of a an island a fun maximizer um, leaves people ultimately not having fun uh, because it's just such a, a meaningless um, experience of your life. But it wasn't, I guess it was a really powerful uh, just sort of meme complex that sort of led us to that thing that, you know, Hey, you are an individual, you have, uh, 
an obligation to yourself. Uh, and I think replacing that ob- obligation to yourself to with like something like an obligation to the people that surround you is the thing that might be able to pull us back from the brink. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I, I completely agree. I also realized that, you know, in a way this obligation fell away because the, the actual material obligation to other people fell away. That's um, right. It's just, you know, we, we're not, you know, if, if I don't help my family, they're not going to freeze this winter. You know, it's not like, you know, our, our cattle are going to die. You know, some, someone's going to do the harvest somewhere in Poland and sell me a bread here, you know, 17 steps down the line. Uh, I don't, I don't think about it. Uh, so it's like this, this, this intermediation from the actual necessities of life. I feel like it's, 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 it's really hard to, I don't know, recreate that sense of dependency when you actually aren't dependent. Right. Maybe another thing that is important um, for people to reconnect with is a sense of, of posterity. I mean, this is really Christopher Lash's big point and it, it points to like the, the real, real deep problem on the left today, I think is, is that it's just sort of thoroughgoing disregard for, um, taking care of the future, Uh, which is a funny thing to say because you think of environmentalism, sustainability, stuff like this, but you know, there's a lot more to life than, you know, just the whales. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely interested in environmental sustainability, but I'm also interested in uh, sustaining the, the beautiful experiences uh, that were created and passed down to me by uh, the people who came before. Um, and I think I owe that to the people that come after. I think this is sort of one of the frame shifts that comes with having kids is, uh, is that you actually understand yourself as a, a part of a lineage and that you have, that you're the, the, the lucky recipient of something that, that people work so hard to get and that it can be lost. <laughs> and you want your children to be able to have a piece of it. Um, so maybe that's another, another angle to go uh, after this individualism thing. It's not just um, that you're, you, you need to stop being an island with regard to the people who surround you today but you're not an island and shouldn't try to be one um, in relation to people from the past and the future. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it's this, this probably ties also into this, um, you know, global homogeneity uh, meme where it's, it's really hard to imagine a lineage that is just like everyone, you know, I'm just part of humanity. It's, it's not, it's, I don't know. It's, it's kind of an alienating, very atomized view of, of what it is, um, to, you know, cause for example, you know, you, you grow up, you grow up in kind of this, you know, boomery Gen X individualism, your ties to your family are, are loosened very much, you know, because it's all, you know, every man for himself, Maybe you're a child of divorce, which is, you know, the, the ultimate uh, f- formulation of you're, you're on your own kid. 
Um, and then you also are like, okay, so maybe I could be part of this nation. Maybe I could be part of this neighborhood. Maybe, you know, um, and the, the best thing you can get is, you know, you, you're part of this we work. <laughs> and this company that you know doesn't doesn't mind if you ping pong table. Exactly, exactly. That's that's the highest the the cusp of community that you're gonna get. Um, it's I don't know. It's it's really hard because even now, I mean, I'm I've moved back to my my hometown and in, in, in Romania, and it's you know it's been it's been tough even here, you know, to to reconnect a community and and yeah, just just build something that's. You know, it's through throughout the coronavirus thing, it's, it's become a little bit artificial because you know, we've we've learned that we can sit in our homes for six months without meeting anyone. So, do we really need to see people? <laughs> do we really need community? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely easier when you need to, right? Uh, <laughs> but maybe maybe you don't realize that you need to. Uh, uh, do something that's hmm, let me let me see how, how can I express this uh, it's very difficult to fix something that doesn't seem like a problem <laughs> you figure out later that it's a problem right yeah and it's a, it's a problem that just builds, you know, and by, by building up, that's the problem. You know, each, each individual day is not a problem. You know, you're, yeah, yeah, that's right. a, a whole year is a problem. A whole 10 years is a problem. Some, and one day you wake up and you're just alone. You're just an island, you know, and you, what do you do? It's also very difficult, you know, uh, I've, like how, how do you, recreate this thing that you've realized that you want in a world in which everyone else is opting out. Um, and in a world where it's so easy for everyone to sort of frictionlessly sort of slide into uh, consumption mode instead of dealing with each other. Um, the, the sort of institutions that supported, uh, people knowing each other across generations and across different walks of life have, have atrophied so much that when you go to a church now, it's usually just, I don't know, I, I try to go into a church and it's like, you know, my family and three uh, old ladies who are about to expire in a giant empty room. It's just like, okay, this isn't actually, this doesn't exist. This isn't a, a place. Um, I don't think that there's an easy way to fix that thing. Yeah, definitely not. And it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, you have, you have churches now that have almost been completely swallowed up by essentially woke religion just to keep them alive in a way. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a new contender religion and it's, you know, it's the thing that keeps, keeps, I don't know, all sorts of evangelical directions and on life support. Uh, and, it's yeah, it's it's really hard because you hear yeah, this. One of, the, one of the horrible things about being like someone who notices the inconsistencies and problems and in, in the sort of progressive uh, mindset is that it actually can be a little alienating. It can it can be something that separates you from people, and that's a I mean that's a that's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know what you mean. It's, it's, you know, cause I've, uh, I've kind of tried my, my hardest to, to integrate. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really tried to, to be a, a, a good person, you know, I've, in line with, with what was expected of me while I was living in London, where, you know, it's this, this is, this is the, the, the mainstream religion. You either buy in or you're completely dropped out. And then in the end, you know, my, my only solution was I was too, I was too far gone. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't be pulled back into the, into the nor normalcy with the other people. So yeah, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> That's why it's so, it's, uh, it's why it's so valuable when you, uh, meet people and make friendships where you can talk openly and just, you know, really, uh, you know, be yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm really grateful to Twitter. Um, it's really been a, a, a big thing for me. Obviously it's addictive and it's, you know, I have Twitter dreams. Sometimes I wake up before in the morning, still arguing with, I don't know, rape groper 25 or something like that. And, you know, it's just, uh, happens, but, uh, overall it's been quite, quite the blessing to, to meet so many cool people. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great one. Um, and also, yeah, thank you for, uh, you know, for, for all the advice. You've been a, a very good, uh, Twitter friend to be. Uh, and especially with, with the baby, it's been really invaluable. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, I don't really have that many people around me who have, who've had children. Um, cause I'm one of these, you know, neoliberal atomized people who barely reproduce. So to me, it was right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. the re-internet, like, it's the same, it's sort of like uh, everything else. Uh, it's a bunch of nerds re-engineering what normies used to know. Exactly. You yeah. know? <laughs> We're reinventing the wheel, being, being real trad about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I'm to reinvent that wheel. Like, hmm, how do we, like, what is, uh, what do you do? How do you go to a school? <laughs> What's nursing? We'll figure it out. Yeah, exactly. We'll Google it. <laughs> we'll Google it. Literally, that is what we will do. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's been useful. Or we'll, we'll ask our Twitter friends who who've had this experience recently. <laughs> so you might you might be getting some some strange strange hours questions about very detailed things about babies. I love um, it. Yeah. That's perfect. So um, before I, I let you go, I will ask you the question of the show, which everyone gets. Uh, and it's, uh, do you have any um, subversive thinker that you'd like to, to recommend that, that people check out someone who might not be getting enough of the spotlight, uh, and you think, uh, you know, deserves a bit more credit? Hmm, well, it's so hard to pick one. But maybe somebody who I think, um, is not getting discussed enough and that might be a lot of fun for folks to read if they, if they so choose is Eric Neumann. Um, I, I believe you've talked, we've talked a little bit about him before, but um, the reason that I found him compelling was because he's really doing, he, he's integrating a psychology sort of project with the sort of German tradition of philology, like the sort of tradition that moves from like Beethoven to Nietzsche and, and to Jung, um, as well as sort of comparative 
study of religion. Um, his his uh, great books are um, The Origins and History of Consciousness and um, The Great Mother. Um, and these are a lot of fun to read because really what they're trying to understand is what is the psychology of religion? Um, what What's going on psychologically in religion? As we have noticed, a woke uh, sort of ideology has a religious structure to it. And reading Neumann, it's really amazing because he sets all these different disparate in time and place religions side by side and shows how they operate in the same way, um, who their archetypal figures are and the, the sort of psychological forces at play that make them feel um, so important and energizing. So it's a little bit of an integrative project. Um, just a couple of teasers that make, might make people interested in this. He talks a lot about the importance of human sacrifice, which is really like integral. It's at the center of every religion really. Um, and the sort of the sacrificed figure, um, whether it's Dionysus, uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Quetzalcoatl, um, or George Floyd, um, there are these things that go together <laughs> in a figure who's like sort of uh, this, it's always a male figure who represents um, some sort of It's it's usually, it's often an enjoyer, in the sense of like uh, Dionysus, you know, he's the the god of of wine, um, but not necessarily. But um, in Neumann's picture, it's all sort of a, a way of playing out sort of masculine and feminine uh, sort of archetypes of um, reproduction. So it's a sort of the, the male figure who, who dies in order to give life. Um, and there's so much of the stuff uh, that begins to blow your mind as you look at, look across different, different religions and how much, you know, they'll, they'll have different content, but they'll have uh, a lot of interestingly linked um, forces underlying the, the sort of surface details. And so if we want to understand what is going on with the, the sort of often mystifying <laughs> uh, contemporary religion that we're inundated with, um, comparing it with the sort of inner structure of these other religions and how it works with people's psychology is a lot of fun. So I would say people should check out those books. Okay, Eric Norman. 
Um, I think it, it's interesting because, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, started speaking um, about Gerard in this context as well. Like Jeff has a, Jeff Schollenberger uh, has a, a new course on Gerard and he's kind of mining similar territory and with the, you know, meta theory and, you know, the concept of the scapegoat, which is essentially the sacrificial, uh, typically male character that uh, that needs to, to take on the sins of the world. Um, and there was uh, an, another book, um, the, the Golden Bough by by Fraser, also covers kind of this, the same territory about kind of the, the the inner structure of religion, but also the the inner structure of, of taboo of you know of the the thing that shall not be named in in, in religions, which I, I kind of would recommend people read it as well and check out as well in this context. It's really it's a really interesting book. But also, um, uh, I've, I've I have the the Great Mother as a book, but I haven't I haven't cracked it yet. But it's, uh, it's definitely uh, one I'll, I'll check out soon. Have you checked out all the the images in the back? There's like a, a bunch of plates um, showing. Just, just open it up, flip to the very back, and just like sort of flip through, and you'll see a lot of uh, like. Uh, religious artworks from different cultures illustrating the same like motifs over and over again. So even without, even without beginning to read a word, uh, that book is instantly gratifying. Okay, perfect. Well, I, I will check it out. I hope, I hope they're visible on Kindle because I'm, because oh, I'm yeah. living. Oh, no, you have like a fake book. Yeah, I know. I live here in the backwoods and it's just uh, almost impossible to get originals of any, any worthwhile book. I mean, I could get, you know, your, your Malcolm Gladwells and whatever, but, but nothing really good. So yeah, unfortunately I'm, I'm relegated to, to fake books. Um, he's really the source for almost all of Paglia. So I, I kind of found him through Paglia after reading, uh, most of sexual persona and, uh, you know, I read also an essay of hers about him, and he's sort of like her primary source. He's also Jordan Peterson's primary source. He's sort of like this unacknowledged forebear to a lot of people that have been active in uh, in discourse over the past decade. But he's better than all these guys. Okay, well, that is a ringing endorsement because you know everyone loves uh, Palia and everyone used to love Jordan Peterson until about five minutes ago. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll definitely check it out. Um, and yeah, I also want to thank you so much for for coming on the show. It was uh, it was lovely to to finally speak with you after uh you know chatting chatting on Twitter for a while. Um, and yeah, it's it's always it's always nice to you know to to put a, a voice to the to the avatar. <laughs> It is nice. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.